It's not possible. No way. It'll never happen. Why on earth would you ever say this? It was in the meeting with elders of a local church and the Apostle Paul made a bone-chilling prediction. And I would imagine that you could have heard a pin drop when he said it. He predicted that in their church and from the ranks of the men in that meeting, false teachers would arise and attempt to destroy the church and decimate the gospel of Christ. The wolves were coming to devour the sheep. It was near the end of the Apostle Paul's third missionary journey around 58 AD and Paul had spent about three years in Ephesus ministering to the churches there. And on his way to Jerusalem now, Paul was passing close by Ephesus and he sent for the elders of the church to come to him. Acts 20 records, And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in me, to me, in every city, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of grace. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then he dropped the bomb. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. No way. Can't happen. That would never be. Well, fast forward six or eight years or so. Paul has assigned his ministry partner, Timothy, as his representative in Ephesus to assist with the church gatherings there. Timothy isn't functioning exactly as a pastor in the normal sense. He's Paul's apostolic presence for a specific reason. And the reason is that the predictions that Paul made about the church in Ephesus and specifically about her leadership had come true. It was happening. Ephesus was the second largest city in the known world, second only to Rome. And so the church in and around Ephesus was important to the cause of Christ. Now, when we say the church at Ephesus, what we're really talking about are the many different gatherings, all of which Paul had apostolic authority over, as well as Timothy as Paul's representative. And what was happening in the churches in Ephesus? Well, many of the leaders, the elders of the church, they had strayed from the unadulterated gospel and from preaching the word of God alone. And even at this moment, 
the seeds of Gnosticism were being planted in the church at Ephesus. Now, Gnosticism as a full-blown belief system wasn't fully formed until the second century. Just very briefly, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which just means knowledge. And Gnosticism basically says that true spirituality is attained through a transcendent experience that is internal and that is subjective to the individual. In other words, if you have kind of a wiggly feeling in your heart, then you've achieved something spiritually. But it was deeply rooted in mythology as supposedly containing hidden and deeper spiritual truths. And it came to be that Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, was seen as a gateway to unlock the real truth, that it wasn't the truth in and of itself so much. The Gnostics would have said that humanity has within us a divine spark and the goal of Gnosticism then is to reach this plane of spirituality so that you're freed from the pains and the agonies of all things that are physical, all things that are earthly. Now there's a lot more to Gnosticism but suffice to say that it found its way into what theologians call syncretism, a mixing of the biblical gospel with heresy. And it became this mixed version of the gospel. And the seeds of this dangerous heresy were already being planted in Ephesus, even in the first century. The heresies present in the Ephesian church were a combination of Jewish, Greek, and then pre-Gnostic thinking. The Jewish nature of the heresies were seen in the false teacher's obsession with the law of Moses, We saw this a number of months ago when we went through 1 Timothy 1. It was seen in an overly spiritualized interest in the genealogies of the Old Testament. But they were also highly interested in Jewish myths, taking biblical characters and assigning stories to them that weren't true. And they saw this as a basis for truth. The Greek or Hellenistic influence on the false teaching was seen in a tendency toward moral excess and a lack of restraint. For example, 1 Timothy 6.5 warns against the use of immorality as a means to some sort of spirituality. That's a purely pagan concept. And then they were experiencing the seeds of Gnosticism. There were some tendencies toward asceticism, which means the, the demonization of all things that are physical and enjoyable. For example, 1 Timothy 4.3 rebukes teachers who were teaching against marriage and were giving dietary restrictions that are purely man-made. These same teachers denied the resurrection from the dead, 2 Timothy 2.18. In fact, they believed that all the end times blessings were already here on the earth and that some sort of resurrection had already happened. Translation, if you're super spiritual, you have this extra knowledge like Gnostics, do supposedly then you must be among the resurrected if you're just a regular person then you haven't attained to that yet and you had the the greater christians and the lesser christians supposedly what were these false teachers like they were prideful they were argumentative first timothy 6 4 paul says he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. They were much more interested in extra-biblical materials than in the Scripture themselves. The Scriptures themselves, 1 Timothy 1.4, they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Do we deal with this today? Look on Amazon. Top three best-selling Christian books of all time, generally speaking, are speculative in nature not just exegesis of Scripture. 
They're speculative. Paul named some of these false teachers. He publicly warned the congregation to stay away from their teaching. 1 Timothy 1.20, he names Hymenaeus and Alexander. He said they need to be handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. 2 Timothy 2.17, he names again Hymenaeus and a man named Philetus. He just openly says, stay away from what they teach. He says they're upsetting the faith of some. Paul made no bones about how you deal with those who would lead the church astray. All through 1 Timothy, he uses very strong words in connection to correcting this error. Chapter 1, verse 18, command. He uses the word urge in chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 5, verse 20, a word we can translate rebuke or reprove or refute. Chapter 5, verse 21, I solemnly charge. He's not offering suggestions. He's not giving fatherly advice. They're not at Starbucks just having a coffee and just having a chat. Why so severe? Why so strident? Because false teachers and false teaching were threatening the very core and the essence of the gospel itself, and that will tear a church apart. And so to provide a corrective, to provide a different direction to leadership run amok, Paul wrote 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 3, he gives a comprehensive, detailed explanation of the qualifications of a biblical elder, of a genuine shepherd of the church. And the implication here is clear. Timothy had a job. He was to clean house of those who were not qualified. So that's where we'll be this morning. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 3. And today we're going to begin a journey through what I'm calling the church's shepherds. The church's shepherds. We continue with 2021 being the year of the church, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And one of the non-negotiable key elements, key components to the church is her shepherds. 1 Timothy 3, we'll read the first seven verses together. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You notice what the enemy of the leadership of the church is? Twice in the last two verses. The devil, the devil. But Paul says here in verse 1, it is a noble task. This is a word that simply means that it's good, it's, it's fine, it's worthy of praise. That to spend a chunk of your life as a leader in the church of Jesus Christ is a fine way, it's a good way to spend the short days on this earth that God has ordained. But it is a task. Literally in Greek, it's a work. Leadership in the church is not to be construed as sitting around in meetings, making decisions that everyone else has to carry out. That's a political model of leadership. That's a corporate board of directors model. Alexander Strzok, the author of Biblical Eldership, 
he said that he doesn't care for the term elder board because that has a, a wrong connotation. Instead, he prefers the eldership because that says you're doing something, you're working. No, instead, 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says that the work of leadership is kapiao, a copious labor. It is hard work. It produces sweat. It produces exhaustion. It is a task, and it is a noble task. What I'd like to do today is just introduce this series to you. Just to get your thoughts kind of going in this direction, I want to just divide our thoughts this morning into four categories the why, the what, the where, and the how. And this is just to get going with this series because we're going to take our time through these first seven verses and you'll see why as we go along. The four questions I'll ask, why are biblical elders vital to church health? Second question, what are some reasons to preach this series to the whole church? Some of you might be saying, I couldn't be less interested in this. You could be talking to me about how to change the oil in a Toyota and I couldn't care less. I'm going to try to convince you. Third question, where are we going with, these, with this series? I want to tell you what's going to happen. And the last question, how important is this text? So first, let's start with the question, why are biblical elders vital to the church? Costi Hinn wrote a very helpful article entitled, Why Biblical Elders Are Vital to the Church. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So I'm just going to quote from him because I really can't do better than what he said. He gives six reasons that I thought were very helpful, and I'll give you a few juicy quotes from Costi's faithful churchman. Six reasons he gives that biblical elders are vital to church health. First, he says the church needs elders who are spiritually minded. The church needs elders who are spiritually minded. And Costi says, quote, the church doesn't need corporate shot callers. It needs shepherds. He says, the term elder is reserved for spiritual men who shepherd the flock. Now, you might say, well, that's obvious. Actually, it's really not. You would be amazed how many churches are run by men who have the most money or the biggest mouths. And that's just the way it goes. No, he says they're spiritual men. The second reason that biblical elders are critical. The church needs elders who care for the people. The church needs elders who care for the people. He says, quote, while the people are working, battling sin, and facing another day of challenges, there ought to be elders who are spiritual men going to the throne room of God on behalf of the people. And he says, no body of believers should be without overseers who have a genuine care for their souls. Why is this important? I have noticed it can be possible for a group of leaders to care more for the institution of the church, forgetting that it's made up of people, not an institution, not a building. There's a third reason. Costi says the church needs elders who model for the people. The church needs elders who model for the people. He says, quote, they don't need to be perfect or on the pedestal, but elders should be joyfully modeling a commitment to Christ and holiness in their lives. What should you expect? You should expect that you could tell a new believer, go hang out with one of our elders for a few weeks and you'll see how to live the Christian life. You should have that expectation. How sad it is that in some churches you have to say, uh, this elder is not a good example to you. No, that's what we're supposed to do. It is our qualification for the ministry. He gives a fourth reason. The church needs elders who support church discipline. The church needs elders who support church discipline. And Costi says, quote, elders oversee church discipline and support a system of correction, purification, and restoration within the church. Why is that important? 
Because if we don't stand for righteousness and holiness, who's going to? Who's going to? I preached as a guest in a church once and I sat down with the pastor and he was a nice man. It was a pretty liberal church. He wasn't a liberal pastor, but the church itself was just in terrible shape. And, and I said, well, how are you doing with this? He's very, very patient, very, very kind. And he told me a story. He said that his first Sunday, they had a big gathering in the church to celebrate his coming. And he said, you know how in most churches people bring you know, fried chicken or a casserole? He said, everybody came in with a bottle of wine and half the church was blasted by the time we were done why is that because nobody was holding them accountable to a standard of behavior that is godly costi gives a fifth reason the church needs elders who teach the word the church needs elders who teach the word he says quote elders are specifically called to the ministry of the word and charged with the task of preserving sound doctrine within the church An elder isn't an elder because he's good at running a company. He's not an elder because he's a natural leader. He's not an elder because he has a winning personality. Ultimately, he's qualified as an elder because he's able to teach. He's able to show what is right and he's able to refute what is wrong. And he has the courage to do both. And Costi gives one more reason. The church needs elders who protect them from deceivers. The church needs elders who protect them from deceivers. He says, quote, elders are essential to a church because their ministry includes an emphasis on protecting the people by using the word to refute those who would harm them. And listen to this. He says, quote, elders stand against false doctrine, mark false teachers, meaning you name them, and refuse to concede against any wolves that would prey on the flock. Now, why is this so important? This is important because Almost all of you, to a man and to a woman, you have busy lives. You're busy trying to survive, trying to scrape out a living, trying to make some money, trying to raise your kids, trying to have your family. You don't have the time to sit around for five hours a day and read the various views of transubstantiation in the Roman Catholic Church and understand why that's so horrible. That's why God gave shepherds to do that for you and to tell you and to help you understand how to interpret Scripture, to help you understand what is true and what isn't. And if the shepherds won't do it, what happens with you? Every little wind of false doctrine that comes along can blow you over if you're not firmly grounded. Well, Costi gives a great conclusion. He says, quote, Biblical elders are critical to the health of a church. Our goal should be to see Christ raise them up in our churches for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Now, let me ask this question. What are some reasons to preach this series to the whole church? Because I know some of you, maybe even some of you ladies, are going, well, I'm not sure I'm that interested in this because I'll never be in that position. So I want to take the majority of our time this morning to convince you that this is for everyone. This is for every single person. Why preach this series to the whole church? Why, why not just do a seminar for leaders or potential leaders? Why not just leave you out of it? Well, I'm going to give you some reasons. I'm not going to tell you how many because I don't want you to be discouraged up front. <laughs> Number one, 1 Timothy is addressed to Timothy, but is for the whole church. 1 Timothy is addressed to Timothy, but is for the whole church. Verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Yes, the letter is to him. The very last verse, though, the very last phrase, grace be with you, plural. In Texas, he would have said grace be with y'all. 
with all of you. What is the assumption? The letter is meant for the church. And obviously, if it's only meant for Timothy, why would it even be in our New Testament? If it, if it was only meant for him, you would come to First Timothy and go, oh, good, I can skip that. That wasn't written to me. No, it's written to the church. And then that means that it's written to all the churches. And this is such a benefit to all of you. You know, I think about uh, one of our favorite things to do as pastors is to go to the Shepherds Conference at Grace Community Church if they ever have it again. I think they're going to finally. It's designed specifically for both vocational and volunteer elders in the church. But everyone that goes to Shepherds Conference knows that the actual pastors and elders that are there constitute somewhat of a minority of the men who, who attend. There is a huge contingent of just regular church members who come to this. And this is a, such a, a huge benefit to the churches that they go back to because they may not be shepherds themselves, but they have a greater appreciation for the training and for the calling and for the gifting and the spiritual commitment necessary to be shepherds. And so it's a, it's a wonderful thing. First Timothy is addressed to Timothy, but it's for the whole church. Here's the second reason this is beneficial for all of us. Church members who understand biblical leadership tend to be effective. Church members who understand biblical leadership tend to be effective. When you have an appreciation for God's design for church leadership, then you tend to have a love for the church. In fact, our experience and observation would teach us that the church that takes a lot of time to teach on leadership tends to grow stronger, tends to grow healthier over time because the church will only progress as far as her leaders progress. First and Second Timothy and Titus are often called the pastoral epistles. Now, they weren't always called that. This is a nickname that was first given to these three letters by a theologian named Paul Anton in 1726. He gave a series of lectures on the church, which were published after his death, and, and the name stuck, the pastoral epistles, or the pastorals for short. It stuck because these letters were written to men who shepherded and had spiritual authority over the churches in Ephesus and then on the island of Crete in the case of Titus. And these three letters have been really the primary source of help and insight and guidance for the shepherds of Christ's church for the past 20 centuries. This is where we go. But the pastoral epistles give such incredible insight into the proper priorities of the gospel ministry that the average church member who becomes familiar with 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus becomes knowledgeable about what the church is to be about. And if you're knowledgeable about what the church is to be about, you understand the proper priorities, the proper purposes of the church, then you can fit in to do your part because you understand where you fit and it makes sense to you. And when how the church is to function makes sense, then the church no longer becomes that institution which is here to serve you and which is some sort of business to serve consumers. But now you see that the church is the very body of Jesus Christ on earth of which you are a part. And so it's so beneficial to you and it makes you a, an effective church member. There's a third reason to preach to everyone about the church leadership. And that is to provide accountability to our current and future leaders, to provide accountability to our current and future leaders in our own church. I think it's a dangerous thing when the members don't know what the leaders are doing and the leaders don't know what the members are doing. That's bad news. But just so you know, beginning with myself, I have asked all of our elders, our paid staff pastors, and other men in the church with leadership potential to listen intently to these Messages, and I've told them that anytime I meet with them, I will be quizzing on what did you learn last time? 
because I want that accountability. See, the church of Jesus Christ languishes and suffers when her leaders decide that they're done learning, they're done growing, they're done changing, they're done maturing. And so we're trying to set up as an expectation here that we always grow, we continue in the word, we continue to grow in the way we understand how to be leaders in the church. This is exactly what Timothy was commissioned by Paul to do in Ephesus, to provide accountability, to redirect the efforts of the eldership toward teaching the Bible and the biblical gospel. And those that wouldn't do it, Paul told Timothy, get rid of them, get them out. They're hurting the church. Here's another reason to preach this to all of you. And that is to officially lay down a solid foundation in our own church, to officially lay down a very solid foundation in our own church. You know, the history of, of Grace Bible Church has been a fairly good understanding of church leadership. But if you look around, this is not the same church that it was 18 months ago. We're a little bit different. Some of uh, you newer folks come in and you say, I don't feel like I know anybody. Some of you have been here for 10 years say, I don't feel like I know anybody. And so it's incumbent upon you to get to know one another. But we need to lay this foundation once again and not just kind of pick and choose. This is our foundation And so this is our effort to put down some firm and solid roots with a comprehensive understanding of church leadership. This is especially important in an independent church like ours because so many of you come from so many different church backgrounds. We've got to have a point of unity and that point of unity is what the word of God says about leadership. And so this way we'll be on the same page for many years to come. This is a series we can always just reference back to. And a question I like to ask is, how can a church member possibly hope to have a proper view of the church if he doesn't have a proper view of the church's leadership? How is that possible? That's like saying, well, I have a proper view of my family. I just don't respect or honor my parents. That doesn't make any sense. The mission of the gospel, the progress of the church has always, always, always been propelled forward through the power of God in the preaching of the shepherds of Christ's church. That has always been the case. Always has been, always will be. Here's another reason to preach this to all of you. And that is to give church members a look into the heart and ministry of the shepherds. To give church members a look into the heart and ministry of the shepherds. It is a very dangerous thing when there is a great disconnect between leadership and membership. And that goes both ways. It is incumbent upon members to know their leaders, but it's incumbent upon leaders to know their members as well. And so we work at that. Now, this is understandable to a certain degree when this disconnect happens. Committing yourself to church leadership, it lends itself to certain experiences and training which the average church member can't relate to despite uh, our best efforts to describe them. But one of the ways the church functions well is when church members follow the command of 1 Thessalonians 5.12, which says to respect those who labor among you. That's interesting that the English Standard Version translates that word respect because it's the, it's the perfect form of oida, know. It means to know the shepherds. In other words, the more you know the shepherds and what shepherding ministry is all about, the more the church functions as a well-conjoined body together. I am amused, uh, the older I get, it goes from irritation to amusement, and I think it's more amusement now, at the wrong connotations of the shepherding ministry that the average church member can have. I have been asked to go to new businesses to bless the business. I say, I, I'm really not in that realm, you know, and so one time I did it, this is years ago, and I thought I'll just be nice, 
And the person said, can you lay hands on my church building or on my building? I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Not going to do that. We're not chaplains. We're not personal uh, spiritual attendants. We are pastors and shepherds. And we shepherd the whole flock of God. So the more you know what the shepherds are supposed to be doing, then you know whether the church is functioning as it should be or not. Just as shepherds are called to know the sheep, the sheep are called to know the shepherds. Here's a sixth reason to preach to all of you, and that is to protect the church from less than effective shepherds. To protect the church from less than effective shepherds. The fact that First Timothy is written primarily to get rid of lousy shepherds and to install qualified shepherds tells us just how important this is. This is to protect the church from shepherds who lack courage, from shepherds who lack knowledge of the word of God, who lack maturity in the word, who lack discernment, or perhaps even lack a core understanding of what the church is supposed to be doing, or worst of all, lack love for the sheep. A shepherd that doesn't love the sheep is a wolf, is not a good shepherd. All shepherds ought to be in a continual learning process. One of my favorite verses in all the New Testament, because it gives me the opportunity to grow and to make mistakes, is 1 Timothy 4.15, where Paul told Timothy, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So I'm supposed to progress. That's supposed to be the case. If somebody comes to me and says, I, I think you believe something different than you did 10 years ago, I'd say, praise the Lord, I learned. I'm thankful for that. No shepherd is perfect and all of us have our weaknesses, which is why the wisdom of a plurality, a group of leaders is so wonderful because we help one another. But there is to be a certain competence. There is to be a certain ability. And you, as the church of Jesus Christ, you're a means to accountability in helping our shepherds grow and learn. In the shepherding time that we try to have with every family periodically, uh, we ask for your insights and ask for your thoughts. Those are helpful to us. Those are, those are useful. They're sometimes humbling. I had a shepherding visit recently. that Somebody very humbly pointed something out that I didn't know. And it was, it was a pain, but it's the kind of pain you need in order to improve. Your understanding of what a shepherd ought to be will help protect the church as a whole because you'll see a fraud when you see one, you'll know it. Here's a seventh reason to preach to all of you, and it's kind of the flip side, and that is to protect the church from less than helpful sheep. To protect the church from less than helpful sheep or members. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I have been in elders' meetings where the name of a certain member is brought up and two or three men go, Oh, because they know there's just so much trouble and drama and difficulty and rebellion involved with that person. John MacArthur said in one of my favorite sermons he ever preached, he said, I suppose all the shepherds in this flock, all the elders of this church, would agree that the joy of ministry is linked to the attitude of the sheep toward the shepherd. When God passes the truth through me to you and you pass the thanks through me to him, that's a tremendous joy. I'll tell you, not everybody experiences that. The driveways of many churches are blackened with the skid marks from the hasty exits of pastors who have been abused and bashed by a heartless, thankless people. He doesn't close in prayer there. He goes on to say that hasn't been his experience. 
But you see, a greater understanding of the ministry of shepherding acts as a preventative. It acts as a preventative to that sort of sorrow given to the leaders of the church. Now, I can say with great happiness and joy and with personal experience here at Grace that one of the greatest motivators in pastoral ministry is an eager and learning people who love Christ and love his word and and demonstrate this in a beautiful partnership with shepherds and sheep. What a great partnership this is. You make certain that I have the resources to spend my time in the word of God so that I might come shepherd you into Christ-likeness so that your lives are lived in a way that are pleasing to the Lord. You live lives that enable you to then come back and do that cycle over and over and over again and we help each other. It's a joyful, joyful partnership. Here's an eighth reason to preach this to everyone and that is to inspire and identify future shepherds. To inspire and identify future shepherds. There have been periods in church history where the Lord has seen fit by his sovereignty to to allow a famine of shepherds. So we want to do our part to avoid that. There's most definitely a calling aspect to the shepherding of Christ's church. You don't wake up one day and say, that sounds like a good idea. I I like woodworking. I like parasailing. I think I'll be an elder as well. No, there is a calling. In fact, our opening verse here gives part of that calling. There is a desire. It's a word that means an internal longing, a yearning. Now, that alone doesn't constitute a calling to shepherd the church any, any more so than a desire to be a great musician makes you a great musician. And somebody can say, I desire to, to uh, play on the worship team. Darren's going to say, well, let me hear you. Because desire alone is not enough. Later on in the passage, we see that there must be a gifting, there must be an aptitude in being able to teach, defending sound doctrine, refuting what is false. There's also a recognition of giftedness and, and calling by other qualified men. Chapter 5, verse 22 speaks of the laying on of hands. This is a, a visual demonstration of already qualified men recognizing the qualifications of newly qualified men. And we have to have this. That's how the church has functioned for 2,000 years. But really, the first step in the man seeing himself as a future shepherd is that desire. And because that's merely the beginning, desire may often precede actually being qualified as a shepherd by many, many years. The same verse, chapter 5, verse 22, specifically instructs Timothy to not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't do it quickly. Now, yes, some would point out that Paul told Timothy to not let anyone despise him for his youth as a leader in the church. He told him that in chapter 4, verse 12. Keep in mind when Paul said, don't let anybody despise you for your youth, that Timothy was probably between 40 and 50 years old. Just a youngster as far as leadership. But in regards to this series, I'll tell you what I'm praying for. I've been praying for this series for a long time. I started preparing this months and months ago. It's my hope that this lights a fire under a few more young men in our church to pursue the knowledge and the character to be a shepherd in the church. And maybe a few will even commit to the many years of commitment, training, and preparation to be the preaching and teaching shepherds in the church because the church of Jesus Christ always needs more qualified men, always. Churches suffer under both volunteer and vocational shepherds who either don't know what they're doing or worse they don't care to know what they're doing and the result is that the precious people of God suffer here's a ninth reason 
It is the duty of church members to recognize potential shepherds. It's the duty of church members to recognize potential future shepherds. This is your duty. Over the course of your lifetime in the church, as you interact with men who seem to naturally lead, naturally guide, naturally teach the word of God, you have a responsibility to do two things. First, as you get to know that man, or maybe even a boy, as you get to know that man or boy, you speak to him and you tell him you're praying that perhaps God might have his hand on him for the gospel ministry whether as a good, solid lay elder for many years or as a vocational pastor in the church. You tell them, you're praying for that. You know what will happen many times? Some of them will say, I never even thought of that. But now that begins to make more sense to me. There are men who have gone through the master's seminary that I am thankful for because I got to say, have you ever thought about being a pastor? And they find themselves in their first week of seminary saying, why did I ever have a conversation with Steve Swartz? Look what happened in my life. It's an amazing thing. So first, tell them, I'm praying for you. You may have the gifting. That may be God's call in your life. That will stay with them. And I want you to picture this. I want you to picture a man of 60 who has been preaching for 30 years saying, you know, when I was 11 years old, an older woman in the church came to me and says, you might need to be a pastor. That may be God's call. And I'm thankful for her prayers because I'm here with you now because of her. The second thing you should do is you should be letting current shepherds know about this person. Let us know. Hey, do you know that this young man here may have a gifting? We want to know about this. Now, most of you don't know this, but I meet once a month or so with a group of future shepherds in our church. We call our little group the Timothy Training Troop, named after the fact that Paul was involved in pointing Timothy to the gospel ministry. These are not men who are kind of sort of thinking about the ministry, but at one level or another are already actively praying, praying for and training and preparing to do the ministry. And so I want to know who they are. I want to add to their ranks. I have a personal prayer to see 25 men in my lifetime in a pulpit somewhere because of my influence. And that starts with you to point them out. You see, a man doesn't just decide all by himself to be a minister of the gospel. It is a church effort. And one of the greatest things you as a quote-unquote regular church member can ever be involved in is saying, I had a small part in this man preaching the gospel to many thousands of people over his lifetime. What a great thing to do. Just a little side note, we're not at this point yet, but I have a prayer and a dream that our church will reach a point where we can have a, a scholarship fund to help men at least a little bit with the costs associated with seminary training. Some larger churches completely foot the bill to train men. We, we can't do that yet, but it's worthy of, of thinking about. You know, we support foreign missionaries, but if a man wants to minister within the borders of our own nation, we kind of tend to leave him on his own. I actually knew a man who was a pastor one mile north of the border of Mexico in Texas, and he said, you know, if I was a mile and an eighth Farther south, I could be a missionary supported by churches all over the country. The church of Jesus Christ is responsible to recognize potential shepherds and to encourage them in that direction, even help them in that direction. Some of you don't know this, but we have members in this church who have financially helped men in seminary and helped them along the way. I'm one of those, not from this church, but when I was starting seminary, one man that I really didn't know that well sent me a note and he said, I mean, we're going to help you get through seminary. And every month for four years, he sent us a check for the equivalent of about a week's worth of groceries. And he was just so faithful. 
He barely knew us, and yet he believed in the gospel ministry, and he is part of the reason that I'm here today. When I was preparing for today, I sent him an email. I said, John, I remember 48 months straight, you helped us. What a joy. Let me give you one more reason. This is for all of you, and I think this might be the most important one. You need to know what to pray for. You need to know what to pray for. The job of shepherding God's people is, in my estimation, the greatest privilege on earth. My so-called day off is Monday. You know what I usually start my day off doing is I get up and I start studying the Bible for Sunday because it's not work. It's not, it's not a, a, an effort. It's a joy. It's a delight. It is the greatest privilege. In fact, Paul calls the gospel ministry in 2 Corinthians 4 a mercy of God. It is a mercy to be a leader in the church of Jesus Christ because there's nothing better. One well-meaning church member many years ago asked me, so have you ever had a real job? I twitched for a moment. I said, you know, I think trying to keep people out of hell is about as real as it gets. I think teaching husbands to love their wives and wives to submit to their husbands and children to obey their parents and to love the church of Jesus Christ, I don't think it gets any more real than that. And yet the ministry is fraught with spiritual perils and dangers and heartaches. It's a never-ending duty. You never know when you're finished. You never know when you've really done enough. If you make something with your hands, there is a point where you can set it down and say, I'm done. But you're never done with the ministry. To be a shepherd is to willingly paint a target on yourself for Satan's minions to come after you and even your family. Why is that? Because when the shepherds fail, then the church fails. You don't have to take out a church, just take out a shepherd or two. There are numbers of you I know that pray for me personally every day and that bolsters my heart, that motivates me to trust the Lord for this from a human standpoint what is an impossible work. But I believe with all of my heart that all of your prayers will be more emboldened, will be more inflamed, more accurate, if I could say that, more effective as you learn in this series about the inner workings of the shepherding of the church. And I think what you'll see is that you'll see the curtain drawn back and that there is a great and tremendous battle going on. It is a battle for the souls of men. It is a battle for the integrity and the purity of the church of Jesus Christ. It is a battle for the wedding dress of the bride of Christ to be kept white. And that battle rages. And where is it fought? It's being fought right now. It's being fought in every pulpit that is opening the word of God and being faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we need your prayers so that you aren't an unwitting pawn in a scheme of Satan to take down a church. Trust me, it happens. Every Sunday of the year, churches disintegrate because their leaders disintegrated. And so you need to know what to pray for. The shepherds of Christ's church need your prayers. We are cognizant of that. You know why uh, they make pulpits with a big old solid piece of wood like this so you can't see our legs shaking? Because this is a weighty and an awesome thing. It's the most important thing in the world. Well, where are we going in this series? I'm almost scared to tell you this, but I'll just tell you I think you trust me enough. We're going to use verse 1 as our home base for the next messages. You didn't catch that, I'm sorry. Ten messages in verse one. And I'll tell you why. 
I bought a house once. <clears throat> it was a really good deal. And when the foundation started going in seven different directions while I was living in it, I found out why it was such a good deal. Because the foundation was rotten. The foundation of the church of Jesus Christ must be a mile deep. And so we're going to pour a mile deep foundation. We're going to look at some other key passages in both the Old Testament and the New Testament using verse 1 as our our home base for a number of weeks, 10 weeks. We're going to look at the basics about shepherding. I want to give you just some foundational knowledge. Who gets to be a shepherd? Why are they shepherds? Uh, What do we call them and so forth? I want to talk to you about the, the heart of a shepherd. What is a shepherd's heart? What are you looking for in yourself if you're a potential shepherd? What are you looking for in your shepherds? What should you expect? I want to talk to you about preparing for shepherding. There's an entire section in the book of Hebrews that is a a primer on how to prepare to be a shepherd in the church. I want to talk to you about strong warnings to shepherds. Because I guarantee you, if you think the Bible has warnings to the regular church members, the warnings to the shepherds are elevated infinitely higher. They are terrifying. I want to talk to you about shepherding Christ's church, not yours. That the shepherds don't own the church. We are stewards of what belongs to Christ and has been purchased on the cross. I want to talk to you about volunteer and vocational shepherds. I'm going to do several messages on those distinctions. And I want to talk to you about the members do these to shepherds and then the shepherds do these to members. Now, once we've done all that, we'll spend just a few weeks on verses 2 through 7, the qualifications of shepherds. And I can almost guarantee you that by the time we get to the list of qualifications, all the groundwork we've done will make them very intuitive to you. Well, of course, he should be the husband of one wife. Of course, he should be sober-minded. This is the most important thing in the world. Of course, he should be self-controlled. He's supposed to be an example to my children. Of course, he should be respectable. This is the word of God we're talking about. Of course, he should be hospitable, meaning to love strangers because we're preaching to the lost. Of course, he should be able to teach. Of course, he should not be a drunkard. All of these things will make complete sense and be absolutely intuitive to you by the time we get to them. So that's my plan. I have one last question. I want to spend the remainder of our time on this. How important is this text? How important is this? I think it is a shame when 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 gets relegated to a seminar with a bunch of men privately in the room. It needs to be taught to the whole church. This section regarding the leadership of the local church in 1 Timothy 3 is not just some dry academic discussion starter. It isn't presented in the context of a calm, roundtable discussion. This explanation is presented in the context of urgency and stress and pressure and harm being done to the very people that Paul and Timothy both love. Now, for example, by way of contrast, if you read 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians is like the teddy bear of the epistles of Paul. You just get this warm, cuddly sense. He's kind. There's relatability. It almost ends with a little, if any book in the Bible could have a smiley face emoji, it would be 1 Thessalonians at the very end. Not so with 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is, the enemy is coming. We need to get down to business. 1 Timothy is written with urgency, it's written with resolve, it's written with need. There is an absolute no-nonsense nature to 1 Timothy. The church that Paul is addressing is a church that has been torn to shreds by bad leadership, and they're still there. Can you imagine Timothy's job? He is to go in one man and start cleaning house of rotten leaders. 
there's a profound dissatisfaction on Paul's part with the state of the church in Ephesus. And the letter is a personal letter to Timothy, and yet it's for the whole church. It's written in a very formal, official, and authoritative manner. I mean, even 2 Timothy is much more warm and and personal. Listen to how it opens. Chapter 1, verse 1. Look at this with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. That's not just a personal letter. That's not, hey, Timmy, how's it going? This is official. In fact, this is the only letter that Paul ever opens by using that extra phrase that he is an apostle by command of God our Savior. It's the only one. The church in Ephesus is desperately needing corrective discipline as the leadership of the church is disrupting the entire life of the body with their teaching. Unqualified men have been elders. Women are using the church to flaunt their wealth and sexuality. First Timothy 2, we looked at that. Needy widows are being ignored by their own families. First Timothy 5, there needs to be teaching there. I want you to look with me at the urgency, the, the quickness, the directness with which Paul is dealing with this church. Chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge, meaning command, certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God, that is the Bible, that is by faith. Chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made previously about you, previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. He's not talking about against unbelievers outside the church. He's talking about war in the church. Holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And now Paul names names among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. Chapter 2, verse 1, the church needs to get back to prayer. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Chapter 2, verse 8, stop arguing and quarreling. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Chapter 2, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This is a very clear directive. The women in the church are to stop trying to exercise authority in the church. Instead, raise up godly men. And then in our text, chapter 3, 1 through 7, again, Paul brings up that qualified elders are to be able to teach the word of God. They're not to be quarrelsome. Those who like to fight, who like to argue, like to dispute with others. Chapter 3, verse 8, the standards of even serving in the church are to be brought up. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued. Chapter 3, verse 15, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. When was the last time somebody told you as an adult, you need to behave yourself? That's what he's saying. They were to get back to the foundation of an orthodox Christology, study of Christ. Verse 16 of chapter 3. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He, that is Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Why is Paul, why is Paul giving that clear statement of Christology to get rid of speculations about Christ, to get rid of teachers who are saying, you know, it seems to me that Christ is sort of like this, or teachers that would say, I think the most important attribute of Christ is this, when the word of God does not support that. 
He says, stop it and teach what the word says. He'll tell them, stop getting derailed into men's opinions and demonic doctrines. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. When somebody in the church says, well, we can agree to disagree. If this is something that is orthodox to our faith, no, there's no agreeing to disagree. You say stop it or leave. Chapter 4, verse 7, Paul reminds Timothy to lead by example by not even considering some of the wayward teachings being put forward. Chapter 4, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And he tells Timothy just how direct he is to be. Chapter 4, verse 11, make kind suggestions. No, he says, command and teach these things. And listen to Paul's concluding remarks to Timothy, chapter 6, verse 2. Right at the very end of verse 2, really starts verse 3. He says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, then the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Oh, what happens when you start putting out speculations and opinions? Friction, because you can disagree about opinions, you don't disagree about the word of God. And now, the picture I have in my mind is as if it's it's like Paul is standing right in front of Timothy's face as Timothy is about to go into a final battle of a war. And he's giving him final instructions. Chapter 6, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who made his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Do you get the importance of the leadership of the church? Paul says to Timothy, There is nothing more important, and if you must stand alone, then do so. You ever been with somebody who's giving you advice, like maybe your mom, and she just can't quite stop? That sounds like the end, but Paul has one more. He says in chapter 6, verse 20, and you can hear his pleading Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Do you see the urgency? Do you see that in the church of Jesus Christ, we will be in trouble because 
When leadership fails, then the church will fail. When the church fails, then the gospel fails. Now, the gospel's not going to fail because when the church fails, God simply raises up 10 more around her. But it is our duty to succeed. So what's the answer to turn a church around? How do you turn around a church like Ephesus that's just filled with elders who don't know what they're doing? How do you turn them around? The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. My prayer is that God would bless the preaching of this text to the glory of Christ and for the health and the effectiveness of us as Christ's bride. That's my prayer. I hope it will be yours as well. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for our heavenly husband, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We, the bride of Christ, give you thanks. Lord, this little minuscule group of believers that meets here on Young Street in a little tiny building, we are a blip on the radar. We are a dot in the universe. And yet you have given us the call to proclaim Christ. Him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is our hope. That is our prayer to be faithful. And Lord, we would pray for all in our church to love and honor their leaders because that is called for and because that is good and that is healthy. I pray for our leadership, Lord. Any areas in which we need to be convicted and changed. Any areas in which we need to repent. Any areas in which we need to be reminded to be more like Christ reminded of this great, tremendous, and awesome and weighty work that is happening. Help us, Lord. And Lord, there may be some other, there may be some young men in our midst that you would raise up and that you would light a fire in their souls that they will devote their lives to leading the church of Jesus Christ. It is a fine work they would desire to do. Lord, I pray that you would bless our little body of believers as we endeavor to be faithful to the head of the church, Jesus Christ, as we look to obey him and him alone as the one who owns us because of his purchasing us on the cross. And Lord, if there's a man or a woman here who just really couldn't care less about church leadership because they're not even certain if they're going to heaven, I pray that this day the Spirit of God would move in their hearts to lead them to repent of their sins, to turn to Christ, and to come to saving faith so that they too might be part of the beautiful bride of Christ, his church. We pray in Christ's name, amen.